Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Hello darkness, my old friend. Ooh, it's a bit of a spicy entry. I want to begin every single episode like that, and I haven't told you this, but I've wanted to for a year. I Why? told you this. <laughs> no, but I've told you now. But it's always in my head as a greeting. Oh, that's not good. No, Darkness, probably shouldn't analyse that. No. <laughs> Just concentrate <laughs> on the my old friend bit. Okay. Thank you. Hi, old friend. I've got a doll's pulse for you, Panda. It's been a while. It's it has been a while. Weeks. I haven't been sent any recently, actually. I think there's just so, there's so little new data to collect. All the new data to collect on pandemic life of, oh, people are drinking more, people are wanking more, people are shoving household items up their arsehole. I just think that that's, (laughs) it's all been, they've exhausted it so fully. So there's not been any new press releases, but I did get one this week. The majority of British women, 51%, Believe what is more important than a handsome face? Um, I was trying to work out what what was, but I, I now realise what you're doing there. You're asking me. Um, uh, 51% more important than a handsome face. I feel like we're on family fortunes now. A nice butt, a loaded wallet, a shapely foot, a car. No, but this is all very telling of your predilections, Pandora. And none of them are actually in there. I mean, I love a shapely foot. No, the answer is a tidy bedroom. I would be more concerned about the cleanliness of the bedroom than the, than the tidiness. I know. There are certain things a that tidy are immediate bedroom. alarm bells. Yeah. That's very odd. But hold on, hold on. Because we must always interrogate the format of your polling as well. Not yours personally, but the polls that come to you. Were they given only three options? You know, was it like you're allowed to choose a tidy bedroom, a encyclopedic knowledge of seashells, or um, an interest in 19th century, like, architecture? You know, if they were only given those three things, maybe... (laughs) These women, slightly baffled, chose the tidy room. I just sort of need to know the other options. Well, as always, we never know how this data is harvested. I mean, this is... People talk about how the internet is using our data. For me, this is the great data conundrum. (laughs) This is the great data history of our time. How are these press releases (laughs) formatted? How is this information collected? Um, I don't know if tidiness is so important to me. I think definitely cleanliness, as you said, is... I'll tell you something that really freaks me out. I obviously don't like no sheets on the bed, which I'm afraid to say still happens oh, with men grim. upwards of middle age. Um, but the thing that I find most perturbing is if you ever go back to a man's flat and it's completely bare. If you go into his room and it's like a sort of American psycho, bare walls... Futon bed. Borrowed the keys from Martian Parsons to do a deed. (laughs) Well, maybe. Or maybe it's even something more sinister of it being just like, well, this is sort of a waiting room until I... Die. ...have a girlfriend I can move in with and she can decorate. Oh, not die. (laughs) No. Well, that as well. I mean, it is a death, really, isn't it? It's a death. Every 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 wedding is a funeral. I literally wrote that in my notebook this weekend. So we're on the same wavelength. (laughs) I literally just had the idea. I was like, every wedding is a funeral. Anyway. From existential deaths to my latest boo-boo. 
Oh, yes, your weekly mea culpa. I have to say, you haven't had to do a, a weekly mea culpa for quite a long time. There was a period of the high-low where it was a sort of weekly little pet for us, wasn't it? Just like a little barking terrier. Just a little, I'm sorry. It's daily in my regular life, but... Yeah, you know how it is. I fucked up last week talking about the new COVID rules when I said the rule of six still applies to two households. In fact, the rule of six overrides the two household rules. And we had several emails from people who have been working on these very rules. So I am really sorry for muddling an already incredibly muddling scenario. I do think this serves a good point about quite how confusing it is, though. I liked your tweet about it, though. Go to work, don't go to work. Go to work, don't go to work. Go to work, don't go to work, go to bed. Okay, yes. I think it's time to return to a promise that we made back in April, five months ago, Jesus, it's depressing, to not talk about the pandemic, as I just don't want to confuse anyone any more than they already are. So on with the COVID-free episode. Before we lift the mood, (laughs) I wanted to ask, what do you think the saddest film is that you've ever watched? I found Gladiator pretty sad. Never watched that one. Oh my god! Any others? Any more for any more? Any? I'm thinking late nineties. I found Titanic quite sad. Yeah, the nineties was a big weepy decade, actually, cinematically. Speaking. I found the one um, Romeo and Juliet pretty bummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was bummer. <laughs> Ar- Arlington Road, also depressing. So the one I was hoping you might say is Stepmom. Is that with Jennifer Lopez? It? No. It's with Susan Sarandon and Julia Roberts. It's currently on Netflix. My friend and I watched it together a couple of nights ago. I cannot fathom how sad it is. I, I can't... It's so sad. And it, I remember finding it sad when I was a kid. I can't believe how sad it is as an adult. I think it is a masterpiece of sadness. Sabrina cried so much she had to pause it and go to the loo because she thought she was going to be sick. That's what happened to me when Marissa died on the OC. <laughs> That's sad. What happens I in Step... the OC. Oh, there's a surprise. What happened in Stepmom? Stepmom... Don't look it up. Don't look up the plot. Watch it on Netflix when you fancy a cry. I have to say, it felt like a workout. I cried so much. It felt oh my very God. I think I did watch this. Thank mm. God, my brain blocked it. Yeah. Watch it again. It's on Netflix. It's so beautifully done, but I cannot believe how sad it is. No. Anyway, just something I thought I'd share with the group. I can't. I won't. I shan't. Lighter note, thank you so much for your continuing Francesco conspiracy theories that keep on coming. We had this from a listener who rather brilliantly signed off as Cat Ghost Detective Stanzibar. I have been following the Francesco ghost story with interest as I also live on the canal in Camden and although I have not heard the sweet sounds of yet, I am certain there are ghost cats living in the canal. Yesterday I made the most of a continued eat out to help out scheme at a restaurant directly on the canal in Camden and I was just looking at my receipt, please see attached and look at the name of the waiter. Coincidence? I think not. And obviously the name of the waiter was... And lots of you wrote in with your own buffet stories. I enjoyed this song by the comedy duo Flo and Joan in homage to the finger buffet. Surround yourself with food and you'll never be lonely. I'm piling mini pizzas on a soggy paper plate. I'll add a couple cookies while I masticate. Who'd have thought that mixing savoury and sweet could make such a tasty nowly treat at the finger buffet? And I'm really pleased to say that since last week's episode, when we talked about all of the Ofcom complaints about diversity's performance on Britain's Got Talent, Ofcom have responded and said that they refuse to investigate the 24,500 complaints against diversity. In an official statement, they said that the main message of the routine featuring a white performer dressed as a US police officer and kneeling over the dancer Ashley Banjo was one of social cohesion and unity. I liked Jim Waterson's tweet that I saw doing the round. He said... Ofcom has just told the 24,500 people who complained about a Black Lives Matter tribute on Britain's Got Talent to, I paraphrase, piss off because there's nothing to complain about. 
well, they've taken eight pages to explain their reasoning, but basically that's the gist of it. Hero of the week, Ofcom. Speaking of heroes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last week. The Supreme Court judge, who was a prominent feminist and one of four liberal justices on the court, only the second appointed to the Supreme Court. She passed away from cancer at the age of 87. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death raised the prospect of Republican President Donald Trump trying to expand the court's slender conservative majority before this November election, which could have severe ramifications on abortion rights for women. In the days before her death, Ruth said she did not want this to happen. My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed, she wrote in a statement to her granddaughter. But it looks like she might have her dying wish overturned by Trump. What's so crazy about this is that whilst abortion is always a partisan issue in American politics, particularly, you never expect it to be a reality that the legal right to an abortion could actually be overturned, that Roe versus Wade could be in any serious jeopardy. But Trump made an explicit promise in 2016 that any Supreme Court judge he nominated would automatically overturn Roe versus Wade. And Zoe Williams puts it really well, I think. She says that whilst opposing abortion has always been the quote-unquote minimum entry requirement for a Republican candidate, she notes that Republican Todd Akin once claimed that it was almost impossible for a rape victim to get pregnant because, quote-unquote, the female body has ways to shut that whole thing down. And now the entire fertile population of the US, as she puts it, has a question mark over its self-determination. It's horrific to think about. It's just horrific. And I just think with great sadness back to that documentary about this incredible woman, particularly when Clinton talks about how she was voted in 93 to 3 to the Supreme Court during his presidency. And you know how many watershed moments she kind of came under pass with her and now to think that just the threat of undoing so much of what she's fought for and Gloria Steinem and all those other really seminal feminists in the 60s. What an immense pressure for a woman in her 80s to know that her dying wish may not be granted and would have such grave political ramifications and also there were pieces being written about because obviously she'd been sick before and recovered and then got sick again but she can't have been um ignorant of how many pieces were being written you know in the year before her death about how politically important her passing not even just her passing but when she passed away would be that's like I mean, she was an extremely selfless, pragmatic, quite serious woman. So I'm sure she dealt with it spectacularly selflessly. But wow, that would that would send me down the down or up the swanee, knowing that the particular date of my death was being written about so widely. And it was the Emmys this week on a lighter note, which went ahead with the nominees dressed up to the nines in their own sitting rooms with all their family. I thoroughly enjoyed the clip of Rami Youssef, the star of Rami, waving his Emmy off back home. Have you seen this clip? Yes, so funny. So obviously because of the way the Emmys have been set up, socially distanced and all over the place this year, the way that they've done it is they've had, they obviously dispatched a a person in a hazmat suit holding an Emmy (laughs) to stand outside their house. Do you think this is true or do you think this is a physical gag? No, I think it's absolutely true that all the nominees had someone outside their house and the person would only come in if they won. I think it's I think it's totally true. So it's just a picture of a quite sad looking figure in a hazmat suit holding Rami's lost Emmy, waving at him sadly through the patio doors and walking off. Just watching your Emmy walk away from you. It's so cruel. I feel like that's such a great metaphor for like the expectations and disappointments of life. <laughs> All the Emmys just being taken away from you. Just You just see them through your patio door, just sadly being taken away. <laughs> it's the year of seeing things through a patio door, to be fair. <laughs> That's not the only titillation courtesy of Hollywood this week. Yes, the Fast Times table read, which is the other thing I've thoroughly enjoyed Jennifer Aniston in. So a table read is... I feel like you'll be better at explaining what a table read is. A table read is when actors 
sit around a table and read from the script, but they kind of semi-act it, but they don't know the words off by off by heart, but they, they bring the same amount of kind of animation as they would if they were walking through it off script, but they do it around a table. So that was done via Zoom in this instance. And they do it before they record the film, don't they? Film the film. Yeah, they it's do like it before they go thing. into rehearsals. Yeah, exactly. And so this was a table read of the original Fast Times film script from 1993, which has Sean Penn and Matthew McConaughey in it. And they teamed up with a ton of other, like, triple star A-list people. You've got Julia Roberts, John Legend, Brad Pitt, uh, Henry Golding, um, Morgan Freeman. And it was all to raise money for Core Response, which is a global organisation operating COVID-19 testing sites across the US. And have to say, this table read gave me so much joy. Oh, I loved it. It's really surreal to see that many famous people on one Zoom, isn't it? Sort of all quite neatly organised and being very obliging. Morgan Freeman narrating blowjobs is... <laughs> I loved that bit. Just spectacular. Um, Julia Roberts and Jennifer Aniston acting the parts of two teenage girls discussing sex is so funny and charming. Giving blowjobs. Sorry, what? Blowjobs. Oh, come on. What's the big deal? Well, I never did it. Oh, there's nothing to it. She takes out a carriage stick and eases it down her throat. Holy cow. She tries, <laughs> but would choke. You just have to practice a little first. <clears throat> okay, relax. Mm, relax the muscles. Relax these muscles. Think of your throat as like an open tunnel. Does it say that? The girls are sliding the current sticks down their throats without gagging. I found it so sweet when Brad Pitt comes into the Zoom screen and he says, hey, Aniston. And she says, hey, Pitt. And she, he says, how are you? And she just says, I'm good, thanks, honey. I just, lo- I just love exes being lovely to each other. I find it so fit. It reminded me of how absolutely mad that media frenzy was around their divorce in 2005. I mean, the fact that I remember the year they got divorced. (laughs) Do you remember all the sad gen memes before memes were even like things? All the spec, like every time Angelina Jolie was pregnant, they'd like look to her for a statement. Every time she was bloated, the paparazzi would think she was pregnant. It just feels unimaginable, all of that now. This poor bloody woman trying to get on with her life. And do you remember there was this, like, widely believed but entirely unsupported theory that they broke up because Jennifer didn't want to have children? So there was, like, I remember in Heat seeing pictures of people in T-shirts saying, I'll have your baby, Brad. It's so tasteless. Yeah, it's so nuts. And those T-shirts that, I mean, full disclosure, aged... How old was I? Yeah, aged aged 18. I did actually quite want one, but Paris Hilton and Nikki Hilton went out in those matching Team Aniston and Team Jolie baseball t-shirts that were sold through, I think they were sold through what ASOS used to be. As seen on screen. Yeah, I think they were sold. Do you remember those t-shirts? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I couldn't get a hold of one. And look, I know this is not entirely relevant, but... How hot is Brad Pitt in his late 50s? I saw a very funny meme of Jennifer Aniston in her aviators and her... She's wearing neckerchief and and Brad in his, like, ageing hippie jewellery, tousled hair. The two pictures next to each other. On the Zoom call. And someone wrote, Florida couple tries to steal large cats from zoo. Oh my god oh my god it really i think they're both incredibly incredibly gorgeous but together carol that image, the outfits had serious carol baskin vibes <laughs> i never really got the brad pitt thing and then i went to see benjamin button and midway through the film there's this close-up that then pulls out into this wide shot of him on a motorbike and it was like the first time I'd seen something, obviously I was at the cinema on this huge screen where I like I understood how teenage girls would have felt 
when they first saw images of Elvis Presley. I literally like swooned. I gasped. I couldn't. I felt like faint from how attractive he was. And I've never really had a moment like that since watching someone on like a big screen. I think, and after since then, I've, I get it. (laughs) I find it quite confusing to figure out who teenage girls do that about now because it was so offline when we were younger. Like my sister was, when Titanic came out and she was obsessed with Leonardo DiCaprio, she had two calendars of him hung in two separate rooms. And it was like a really strong memory for me of seeing Leonardo in like two different poses. Like every, do you know what I mean? Every every mm. day for a year, I saw a hunky picture of this man. Mm. And now, of course, all of that fandom and fangirling is online. It's on TikTok, yeah. it's on Instagram. So I'm not really privy to it in the way that the whole world, like you could not miss the Leonardo yeah. fandom in the early noughties. Late 90s? Is it K-pop now? I wonder if it's a bit K-pop. Oh, we've never sounded so old. Shawn Mendes. There's something about adolescent girls' sexuality and desire. Cause it's not, maybe it's not even sexuality sometimes. That basically, I think, when you start, when you come out of your tweens and into your teens and you familiarise yourself with what sex is, what male anatomy is, how sex works how men can be dangerous, the predatory nature of strangers that are male. I think that I definitely remember a feeling amongst girls of my age of like, oh, sex is really exciting, but men are very frightening. And it's nice having their attention, but also it's horrible feeling like an older man is staring at you on a train or you feel like it's so tied up with feeling like quite scared as well as incredibly excited. So I think that there's a reason why teenage girls often go for these quite effeminate looking men to throw all their desires and their lust and their and their hunger at because it feels safer somehow if they look a bit like a girl. So that's what I think the Leonardo DiCaprio thing was all about. And that's what, like, even Elvis Presley, he had an incredibly feminine face. The Beatles, you know, they look like little boys. I think it's very, it's always a very particular type of boyishness that feels like it's a safe sexual place for, like, adolescent female fantasy. That's a really interesting analysis of the kind of clean-cut heartthrob I suspect as well it's something to do with the fact that when they look very young you yeah yeah think that they are just the boy next door even though no boy next door to anyone ever looked like that well I mean next door to someone presumably can you I think you can guess what my absolute favorite bit of that fast times table read is or my favorite person Shia LaBeouf bingo He's the only one not fully clothed or at a desk or in a sitting room. In fact, he is so categorically none of those things. He's in the back seat of a car. It's obviously a really hot car as he's pouring with sweat. Pouring with sweat. Smoking something. Wearing neon sunglasses. He's basically at a sort of rave in the back seat of somebody's car. <laughs> and he does this absolutely amazing. Everyone else is quite mature when Morgan Freeman starts talking about blowjobs. Like they're obviously aware that it is quite funny. And, you know, there's like a gentle smile on Brad Pitt's lips. And like, but like, they're, they're all quite like mature about it. It's like us, the audience that, you know, snicker. Except for Shia LaBeouf, who lets out this extraordinary sort of smirk snort when Morgan Freeman starts talking about um blowjobs and just his very presence is so incongruous in the middle of the zoom um compared to everyone else's kind of setups and no one seems to bat an eyelid which I loved as that is just must be just like the Hollywood MO is that there's always someone sort of stoned and topless on your film set and you just got to roll with it (laughs) yeah perhaps because Sean Penn just looked so sanguine about absolutely everything the whole way through morgan freeman as well completely implacable (laughs) oh i loved it i thought the whole thing was delightful i think it might be the first zoom i've enjoyed in 2020 (laughs) yeah me too and crucially we weren't part of it Continuing on the Hollywood theme this week, the model and actor Emily Ratajkowski wrote a piece for New York magazine about who owns the rights to a public image and specifically hers. I always know when a piece has 
blown up beyond kind of the media or Twitter circle itself when I get sent it by lots of non-internet-y friends just going, what do you think? And then 400 question marks. So this piece, gosh, how to explain this piece? It's an extremely impactful and eloquent look at, written by Emily Ratajkowski about finding herself or her image variously appropriated by men and the expectation that she will always be grateful and humble for this. And she looks at the ramifications of being Instagram famous, but furthermore, a model known for posing nude. And she describes several instances in the piece in detail of when this happened. Um, And the way she fleshed them out, I found so interesting. So, for example, when she starts, you know, with when a paparazzi tried to sue her for $150,000 for sharing a picture he took of her on her Instagram. Yes, and this is something that that paparazzo was known to do. This was a way that he he would kind of make money. So he would deliberately take pictures of people who might very well share that picture. And then he'd be like, that's my picture. It's so confusing because obviously he'd never sought permission. This is is obviously a big problem around paparazzi in in the States particularly is that when you're considered a public figure, the paparazzi don't have to ask your permission to take your picture. So then you're in the position that Emily Ratajkowski is where she's being sued for posting a picture of her, even though her permission was not sought. Anyway, she then goes on to give other examples, such as when the artist Richard Prince blew up one of her Instagram pictures, again without her permission, and sold it in an exhibition he did on Instagram pictures for $80,000. And she writes about the profound sense of disassociation she had looking at pictures of herself her own picture taken from her account at this exhibition, whilst being told by her friends and peers how chuffed she should be that Richard Prince deigned to include little old her in his exhibition. She writes, Everyone, especially my boyfriend, made me feel like I should be honoured to have been included in the series. Richard Prince is an important artist, and the implication was that I should feel grateful to him for deeming my image worthy of a painting. How validating. And a part of me was honoured. I'd studied art at UCLA and could appreciate Prince's Warholian take on Instagram. Still, I make my living off posing for photographs and it felt strange that a big-time fancy artist worth a lot more money than I am should be able to snatch one of my Instagram posts and sell it as his own. I still don't really understand this bit of the story. So this man just blows up Instagram photos and puts them onto a canvas and then sells them. Which I do, I suppose that is what Warhol did with his silk screens. But from the images that I saw of his, I mean, using inverted commas as she did, paintings, it didn't look like he'd augmented them at all. Yeah, I mean, that is it, isn't it? It's like that modern take on Warhol. And I suppose Warhol was very um, divisive at the time. There were a lot of people who didn't think his art was art. And um, I can't say that I agree. I can't say I get this at all. But. But just to be clear, so it's literally just printed Instagram images. He doesn't add anything. He adds a caption, so his caption is always the last on it. Oh, right, yeah, she said in the piece. Okay. And so to generate some kind of control over her image, she buys one of Richard Prince's pieces back. The main portion of the piece is about the photographer Jonathan Leader, who took her pictures when she was an unknown model in 2012 and who she accuses of sexual assault. He has released in several editions, very expensive editions, I think they're $80 a book, naked Polaroid pictures of her which were taken for a magazine and which he is at times convenient to him and without her permission releasing as these expensive coffee table books. I think there's been five or six so far. This is this isn't a particularly infuriating. I mean, it's, it's, it's all at times very sad and very infuriating to read, but you have to have usage for a photographer. So if a photographer takes a model's images, there is a usage. So they are either used for a specific magazine or if he intends to have them just as his own shots, there'll be a usage period after which time he cannot publicly share those images. And she's scrabbling to find the usage for these shots. And there is no usage. She would have to sue him in order to get him to stop. And she decides that she doesn't have the kind of money to do so. And the other thing that is upsetting is the night that he shot her is the night that she claims he sexually assaulted her. And he 
writes about the night that he shot her, obviously leaving out that detail, but with a different narrative to the one that she recalls, which is obviously a night of immense trauma for her. And I think Jonathan Leader's riposte to being accused or response to being accused of sexual assault really buys into that. You do know who we're talking about, right? This is the girl that was naked in Treats magazine and bounced around naked in the Robin Thicke video at that time. You really want someone to believe she was a victim. Yeah, I mean, that's just appalling. But it's also just really dumb. Like, I, So I dumb. Guess, like, surely, really you know... Do <laughs> believe that about female sexuality? Like, is that still what we believe? That it's, that it's like, either you embody and embrace and celebrate and exhibit your sexuality in one way and therefore you're up for it all the time <laughs> or you cover it up and you don't use it at all and you have entire autonomy of it. I mean I can't believe I'm even saying that as two options it, it's, it's so stupid like I, I can't believe people still actually believe that but they obviously do it's also so dumb as even if he thought that surely he's got people um uh, advising him who were like oh, listen, mate, like, things are a bit different now. Like, you've got, to be, you've got to be a bit woke. Just be a bit humble and say that, like, you know, you categorically deny it, but you're sorry if you ever caused her pain. You know, that's like, what was the sort of, like, Louis C.K. response or even, like, the Harvey Weinstein response? Like, you know, that's not how I remember it, but really sorry if I caused any, like, whatever. Like, it's, it's just so dumb, even on an optics level. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the really interesting and I think ever pressing issue in that it's just going to become more and more of a conversation because at some point we've got to decide who owns internet content. And the rather sickening fact that I think a lot of people forget is that you don't own your own Instagram photos. They are deemed public property. And I think you can know that rationally. But when you see that happen, so like a male artist selling a picture of a woman for $80,000 without her consent. So literally profiting off her body without her consent. It does feel extraordinary, like a sort of form of internet misogyny, subconscious or otherwise. But I think anyone who shares content on the internet, you don't have to be interested in Emily Ratajkowski or even this particular example of Emily Ratajkowski. I think we should be thinking about the parameters within which we share and, and the shifting context of ownership, particularly around the female body. I think the idea of a model's body being property and free for people to make money from without her consent or exposed without her consent or use or indeed abuse without her consent is obviously horrifying. But I think the public thing is where it gets more confusing and complicated for people because her body is public to an extent. Her body is known to the masses. It's how she's made her money. It's what she's attached her identity to. Now, I'm not saying that that excuses any of the any of the things that she's been through that we've already discussed. I think what she's been through is often she has nothing but my sympathy and compassion. But the female model's body and the way that it's discussed and viewed is going to be different to any other sort of woman's body. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I think it's, it's the body as business and when we're talking about business there's a very different kind of set of yeah context than when we're just talking about ethics because like business and ethics don't yeah. always collude exactly. because her her product is is her body, which is something that can be very easily violated or, or destroyed or damaged or hurt. Whereas most other people's product, be it you and I, are words or someone's paintings or someone's clothes or jewelry, whatever their product is, it's, it's, it can be, they can be stolen and they can be uh, misinterpreted or they can be uh, defamed or spoken about in a cruel way, but they, they can't be, they can't be abused. For me, the issue where I really struggle is she always brings things back to choice feminism, which is a form of feminism that I fundamentally disagree with. Choice feminism means that whatever a woman does is inherently feminist because she chose to do it. 
it's an extremely individualistic interpretation of feminism. It doesn't consider the impact of personal choice on other women. Sharing nude pictures, for example, might make you feel good, but what's the impact on other women? What kind of environment does that foster or culture for other women? That doesn't mean there's anything bad with doing those things or making your choices, but to attach feminism to them is where I see a shortcoming. This idea that everything a woman does is feminist because she's doing it. I wonder if her having to position her work constantly with a feminist logic, you know, I feel like she's had to do that a lot. And maybe that's her choice. Maybe maybe she really does believe that what she's doing is subversive or empowering or somehow is a piece of the jigsaw puzzle that fits into the much broader picture of women's equality and progression. I wonder if this is something that she's she feels like she's been forced into into saying or defending or doing. Because the fact is, I take... Oh, this is probably going to get me into trouble. But I do take great issue with this idea that every individual in the public eye or not in the public eye needs to dedicate some or all of their life to social change. I think it's amazing if people do that, but you can just live your life for yourself if you want to. So maybe she's someone who has capitalized or even derived joy from traditional structures of femininity that aren't progressive and are arguably oppressive but she doesn't believe that the damage that they're inflicting is larger than her desire to do it I'm speaking in a very convoluted way what I'm saying is maybe there's a world in which she just likes being part of an older tradition of female sexuality and making money from it and it's not it's not politicized at all and she felt like she's had to politicize it or somehow create some ideology that ratifies it so the kind of criticism around her work will quieten do you think that's possible i think that's absolutely possible for some women in the public eye i don't think it's true of her because she has always been very politically engaged um she's done quite a lot of campaign work in the past for bernie sanders and she i know i think i think she has always actually framed her choices about her body in a political and feminist context um i don't think she thinks at any point that, or she's not interested in feeding into a, a kind of um, apolitical, um, historic uh, sort of archive. I think that what she thinks she's doing, and that, look, I'm not arguing against this totally, and I don't think you are either. I think what she thinks she's doing is very much reclaiming the female gaze, which is something we've heard about probably in the last 10 years from a lot of artists who photograph themselves nude, um, you know, who share pictures of uh, their genitals, who kind of talk a lot about body hair. You know, it's this whole idea of like, this is what you think the female body is, or this is how you think the female body should be portrayed. And this is how I'm choosing to do it as a woman. Where people have, and I imagine that you might feel like this, where people have kind of taken umbrage or been like, "Mm, I'm not sure about that, is that she has, but then this is not her fault. And she has written about this before in another essay called Baby Woman for the Lenny Letter, Lena Dunham's old um, newsletter, is she has a very pin-up hot body. She's got big tits, big boobs, tiny waist, pert bum. She is a man's or what some men would see as the fantasy body, what has been kind of drawn as the fantasy body in popular culture for a really long time. Now, she says, I didn't choose this body and that doesn't make my politics any less than they are. Here's what I think. I think that 
for a lot of women, there's a slight acquiescence to, look, this is a big conversation and this is, and I'm just grappling. So I know that as I pincer at these thoughts and words, they could be much more articulate. But I think a lot of women feel, myself included, when you think about the patriarchal standards of beauty, I, I do, to an extent, try to conform to them. And a part of me feels like, well, do you know what? I'm in the system now. <laughs> I, I, I'm brainwashed. I will never know whether me wearing uncomfortable heels, maintaining a certain body size and getting all my, my body hair waxed off, I will never know whether that's something that I really want or whether that's been so indoctrinated into my idea of my own desire that it would it's impossible to know whether it's innate or not it's probably not innate I think we all know it's probably not innate but do you know what I think it's innate now so I'm just gonna go with it but that's where choice feminism as well falls flat because the choice feminism does not take into account the kind of conditioning of that context so it says oh it's my choice therefore it's feminist but you're making those choices on a, in a certain landscape, in a certain environment. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. is that, sorry, carry um, on, but that's where I see an issue. Yeah, and I think what I'm saying is like, I don't, I don't look at, well, I mean, it doesn't matter because I'm not a model and I don't use my body for my work, but I think there, there are ways that I move through the world where I think in, in very small ways, I am participating in moving feminism on so when I say small ways I'm talking like microscopic in lots of ways in terms of how I conduct my romantic and sexual relationships in terms of how I conduct my friendships in terms of how I try and speak to other women and treat other women in terms of how I work with certain women or discuss certain women's work it, that's in my very small way I feel like okay well I'm doing my thing but then there's this a whole other side of me that's like I don't think I'm doing anything if, if anything I'm probably I'm probably restricting again in a microscopic way how things are moving on and a lot of that is is how I present and the preoccupation that I have along with many other women with the way that I look I think Emily Raskowski can do things and participate in conversations and take action that progresses the quality of life for women. But, and I'm sure she does do that. You've said that she's, you know, an activist and that she's politically engaged, but there's no way that her work does that. But I don't think that that should be, I don't think that that should be condemned. I don't think that every human alive has to dedicate every action to a wider service. I think a lot of women, though, would disagree with you. They would say that they feel like the pride she takes in her naked body is empowering. However, there are also a lot of women who wouldn't say but that. It's empowering. it's empowering for her, but it's not empowering for the people who use images like her to make them feel make themselves feel unworthy or develop eating disorders or damage themselves in some way that's not her fault that at all and that's not blame that she'd be placed on her door but she has to recognize that that she is part of therefore a system which is enormous which in in some way most women participate in some small way but it, it's not it's not helpful, but I don't think everything needs to be helpful. This is such an enormous thing that I'm trying to get at, and I don't think I'm getting at it very well. But that's the problem with choice feminism, is this idea that every choice a woman makes is feminist because she made it. It leads mm. us to this cul-de-sac where everything is deemed to be feminist that a woman does. And so she can't help but fail at being a feminist at every turn because not every single thing that a woman does can be feminist. Even like... Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Gloria Steinem. Not every single thing they did was feminist. And as you say, that's okay. We have to stop framing it within that narrative. Something else that has been really niggling me for a long time now, I think I've said it or written it before about Emily Ratajkowski, is that where I feel like Instagram is, and I don't know how we solve this, and it's something that I have grappled with personally, is that 
when you're looking at images, you don't see the intention. So Emily Ratajkowski might be sharing those images with a different intention to another woman who shares images of her body, um, who doesn't care about feminism. The intention might be different, but the end goal when you're scrolling through Instagram, or as you say, looking at adverts, is exactly the same. Like, what's the difference when you look at her Instagram or Kim Kardashian's Instagram or someone else's Instagram? You're still seeing hot pictures of a body. You're not seeing, I don't know, all the steps of the female gaze or all the, like, feminist points that got you there. You're just seeing the image. So, like, the output is still the same. And people look at output. They don't take the time. God, how I wish the world worked like this. But who would have the time to imagine or appreciate the intention of every image we see to be like oh okay but that's not that because it was created with this set of ideals or because it's trying to do this you just don't see that especially in our very very rapid rapidly scrolling world also this is just going to completely contradict everything I've just waffled on about but I remember when I interviewed Rosie Huntington Whiteley I said to her you know, most women don't look like you. Most women, when they put a picture up of themselves that's a flattering picture or, you know, slightly a modest picture or a selfie or whatever, there's a feeling of you battle with your with your ego and self-awareness. And there's, you know, every woman I know has that of like, oh, should I be putting this up? Why am I putting this up? And there's a sense of self-consciousness. Do you have that? And she said, every time I put a picture up of me looking hot, I worry that I'm making a 14-year-old girl feel bad about herself somewhere. And I appreciated her cognizance of of that process. But then I also felt like, that's a lot on you. Like, as as Emily Raskowski said, like, you've been given this body and this immense beauty. Beauty is something that has always been um, a pleasure and a joy and a thing to behold from the dawn of time. And maybe you should just be allowed to use it for financial gain or just to put something beautiful in the world for people to appreciate and not feel this like heavy weight of how an accident of your genetics holds up or maintains or becomes a pillar for these supposedly toxic standards of beauty. I suppose the difference is Rosie Huntington-Whiteley isn't claiming to confound the very ideals that she's perpetuating. That's where it gets complicated. And there's a report by Hayley Norman where she talks about comprehension not being resistance, which I think is a really pithy way of describing that the way that just because Emily understands something doesn't mean she's actively resisting or even changing it. And I found that quite confronting. Uh, It definitely made me think about my own work. I wonder how often I've understood that I'm complicit in something without necessarily offering proactive steps towards dismantling it. But I, I totally agree. I think about this a lot with myself. I think, you know, acknowledgement, as I said, that I'm in the system who does that benefit? That benefits me for a sense of self-awareness. It doesn't really benefit anyone else. How much of your life do you want to dedicate for the benefit of others? It's such a big philosophical question, I think. She's still making a huge amount of money. And I think Haley's piece basically said there was this feeling in the essay sometimes that, as you said, that this idea of resistance of I reject, I reject this world. But if you're still financially gaining from it I don't think you are rejecting it what do you think about the response to the response or the critique of the critique that this analysis is kind of completely bypassing the really shocking story that has been told a lot in the last few years um with a lot of photographers look at what happened to Terry Richardson is that the sexual assault that she's talking about that as a 20 year old model she was assaulted by a photographer um in something that felt quite commonplace. Do you think that that has been bypassed in this kind of analysis of image and internet bodies? Yeah, well, we haven't mentioned it once, have we? To our shame, really, because as you said, that that is the thing that is the most shocking and the most <laughs> ethically clear cut about Yeah, there's nothing story. to debate. There's nothing to debate about that. And also... 
the only thing to examine beyond the, the fact it it was a barbaric act of violence is what knock-on effects that might have had on her and her self-image and how that might inform the way she thinks about ownership of her body or her own gaze. It is an issue which... You see, this is interesting, because you would have said, I'm not an internet-y person, I'm not going to read this long read. Look how interested you got talking about it, doll. I don't think people can fail to be engaged by this. I mean, I didn't think I was initially interested in this story, but it does key into something I am interested in, which is there's nothing I love more than public figures who are brave and selfless enough to mine huge amounts of their energy and passion into larger issues and often at the expense of their own status or or power or wealth. I think I long for a landscape where that's a part of celebrity culture and that's a part of general culture, that that's something that we're, that we're all thinking about all the time. It's just, I do think it should be a choice. And it's, as I keep saying, I know it's like a basic observation, but I do defend a human's right to just, to have a career and put things out into the world that isn't necessarily radically progressive. This is why I really wanted to talk about this with you because it does just go so much beyond Emily Ratajkowski and I think that is why conversations around her often do. Like, if you remember back to Blurred Lines and how many, like, universities tried to ban it, like, how much conversation... And and to be fair, that song would never get made now. You know you want it. It's so weird. But she does... um, she does spawn a lot of conversations and to give her credit where credit's due, she is extremely happy to place herself at the centre of complicated discussions. That can't be easy. Yeah, and she has, she has whether you agree with parts of her essay or not or whatever you think of her, it has continued a very interesting conversation online. For the high comes from Secret Spa, all of your favourite treatments at home. Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty treatments, including massage, manicures, pedicures, waxing, hairdressing and tans. When you use Secret Spa, there's no need to ferret around the city's salons for appointments. You can book from 6am to 10pm, seven days a week, and sit back and relax while your therapist comes to you. Perfect if you're working long hours or have children at home to look after. Secret Spa works with only the best therapists and also has several rounds of assessment so you can be sure you're in safe hands. They also wear full PPE and carry out the appointment under strict hygiene protocol. And although it does make practical sense to have beauty treatments at home when the public salons are under so much pressure, it's also just such a luxury to enjoy them at home. You can have your own music playing, you can drink your own tea, you can wear your least attractive leggings and t-shirt combo. To enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking, visit secretspa.co.uk forward slash hilo. That's secretspa.co.uk forward slash hilo. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. you have you got a grandfather clock in the last time we spoke no i'm away i'm not in my not in my flat at the moment can you hear it yes and i have to i was absolutely riveted by 
this clock, which I've never heard in. So there you go, hello listeners. If you hear this clock and you're wondering what it is, it's because uh, Dolly is away from home. She's not got I'm a grandfather not in Camden. clock. No, I'm not in Camden. <laughs> haven't bought a grandfather clock. <laughs> Panda, have you got any recommendations for us this week? Yeah, a couple of things I loved. Won't go into great depth uh, about them, but just really want to hat tip them. I gobbled the whole of The Duchess on Netflix, which is Catherine Ryan's new comedy show this week. Oh, I've heard great things about that show. Yeah, it's wild. It's very original. It is... Um, time's quite painful to watch. It's, it is a little bit clunky in areas, Um but I found it so unique and there is such an enormous heart in it. It's loosely based on her own experience as the mother of a, a daughter um, and her daughter's nine and she has her in her early 20s with a man she's no longer with. And the series is basically about how <laughs> she's in like a relationship with her daughter um, and she treats her like an equal and how, you know, that can be kind of amazing for mothering, but also like quite a strange scenario. But I just love the way it's called The Duchess because it's basically hooked on the fact that her character wears like unbelievably schwitzy, glitzy clothes around, I think it's filmed in Crouch End, which I think is where Catherine Rahn lives. But to like go and do the pickup and stuff, she is in like full sequins and pearl headbands and she just does not she is the epitome of that acronym dgaf she does not give a fuck um so it's really beguiling it's not perfect but what is and um deliciously easy to consume because each episode is 20 minutes long and there's only six and you know me i love a box set that i can complete without um causing myself a sort of spinal injury um something else i really loved is a bbc sounds mystery series um starring romola gary yeah i thought it was garai as well romola gary called tracks and there have been four series of this and i'd never heard of it but i found it because i have never listened to an audiobook and i know that's probably quite an extraordinary statement to make but I have never listened to an audiobook and I only ever listen to podcasts when I'm out and about or I'm traveling and often lose concentration. And I really wanted to immerse in something which would help me to turn my brain off. And I thought I will give a mystery series a go. I had listened to Serial, but I think I dropped off before the end and they didn't solve it, did they? Which yeah. is not my favourite type of mystery. <laughs> um, so I started, I tried Tracks and there's been four series and I started at the beginning and it's the most brilliant drama written by Matthew Broughton. I think it would work really well on TV. And the first series is about a doctor, played by Romola Gary, um, who goes to the airport to pick up her father, her long-lost father, who has flown in to meet her, and the aeroplane crashes in front of her. And it's her looking into who her father was, um, what meaning it had him being on that flight, and why that flight crashed. And it's really, really well-produced. I really, really recommend it for someone looking to um, immerse themselves. Like if you, you know, have long commutes, lol. Um, how how long is it? It's pretty long. It's 45 minutes an episode and there's like nine episodes. So it's like a really, you know, you can really get stuck in. And I just was so impressed. I have listened to The Archers a few times, but I was just so impressed by the like sound, you know, like the no- the sound of when they're in like a big empty room or when they're like in the car and the speedometer's going up like it must be really difficult to record things with that kind of space soundscaping yeah yeah really recommend that and the last thing I absolutely loved um my sleep has been all over the place so I read this over a few nights of insomnia is Matt Haig's new novel The Midnight Library um I just thought it was completely gorgeous it's about a woman called Nora Seed who is very depressed and wants to commit suicide Um, and rather than dying she is caught in between life and death in a library where she can choose to try on 
an infinite amount of lives, which she reaches through these books, to see if she would be happier in any of them. And if any of them cause her to want to live, then she will live. She won't die and she can live in this new life. Interesting. It's a huge premise. And what I loved about this book is that it wears these really big ideas very lightly and really um, charmingly but cleverly. There's nothing pretentious about it, but Nora is um, a philosophy graduate and she's really interested in uh, the kind of philosopher's screeds on life, like what makes a good life and, uh, you know, what makes her want to live. And so there's a huge philosophical and physical, as in physics, element to it but it's so incredibly easy to read and I think the thing is whenever someone writes about obviously Matt Haig his at the core of all of his work is mental health and that is like it's a controversial topic to talk about with any authority he has got you know gets his fair amount of shit as any anyone with a large amount of followers talking about something like mental health does. And I wanted to just read one bit where she slowly, slowly starts to come to realise that no life is anywhere near perfect and no person or relationship is anywhere near perfect. And it's really humbling and I thought you might find this bit quite touching as well, Doll. A person was like a city. You couldn't let a few less desirable parts put you off the whole. There may be bits you don't like, a few dodgy side streets and suburbs, but the good stuff makes it worthwhile brilliant metaphor love that what about you doll what have you been enjoying i'm late to watching this way up have you seen it panda no so i'm also late to watch it what is it oh you'll love it it's ashling b's tv show the first series of which aired last year ashling wrote it and stars in it she plays Anya, a single 30 something Irish woman who is an English language teacher living in London and is recovering from a nervous breakdown and some time in rehab. Sharon Horgan, who's the executive producer, plays her adoring but concerned older sister, Shona. I'm only a few episodes in, but I'm absolutely loving this series. I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to it. In the episodes I've watched so far, it's really subtly touched on big topics such as mental health, deep loneliness, parental grief, the pressures and anxieties of the biological clock, everyday prejudice, and it's all explored with a really easy warmth and familiarity and a very well-honed silliness. Ashling's humour balances thoughtfulness with goofiness in a way that is so hard to do and finding it so comforting and laugh out loud funny. And I find her just utterly watchable and charismatic and totally gorgeous. Life is hard for men. You can't do anything now. Give a woman a hug in a bar, suddenly you're a rapist. Well, maybe if you don't know her, don't hug her. Gone too far, the whole thing. Yeah, the whole thing, yeah. The whole thing. I also loved Seven Pledges to My Single Friends, an article written by Caroline O'Donoghue. She sets out the article by talking about a single friend of hers who lives alone and who she saw recently. And her friend told her how lonely she's been during lockdown, how difficult it's been and how a lot of her friends who are coupled up haven't been as understanding or accommodating as she was hoping that they could be. And it gave Caroline pause for thought as someone who's been in a long-term relationship for a long time and who has a majority group of friends that are single. And, you know, so much is said culturally of how we celebrate and support those who are in relationships, married or have families. But it's just a nice contemplative essay from her on the things that she can do as someone who is in a relationship, how she can support and celebrate her single friend. While I can't promise to keep up the big Soho dinners and the three bottles of wine on a Wednesday evenings forever, I can pledge the following. If we are talking about how hard it is for you to meet anyone new, I will not suddenly turn to my partner and say, Do you know anyone nice? Of course he doesn't know anyone nice. Men make five friends at school and keep hold of them for the rest of their lives. All of those men are married. The only single man my boyfriend knows is his barber, and that man thinks coronavirus is the government's way of trying to chip us. 
If I'm ever planning a wedding, I will not insist at every turn that it is an excuse for a party, that I just want a really chill day and that I'm not into fuss. I will not keep repeating easygoing statements while simultaneously acting absolutely insane. I will realise the stress this puts on you as the person who has to hear about wedding plans. I will try to be utterly frank about how insane the wedding is making me, instead of leaving you to talk me down from a ledge, gently asking if perhaps I would like the ivory chair coverings, and insisting that no, they're not too fussy, not if I want them. When something good happens to you, whether it's a job opportunity, a trip abroad, or a 23-year-old male model, I will turn the warm beam of attention onto you and I will allow you to bask in it like it's an Italian sunset. I will not use your adventures as a yardstick for my own domesticity. I will not immediately launch into a litany of reasons why I can no longer travel abroad or work on huge projects or sleep with men who are too young to remember 9-11. I will save that for therapy. If I cannot be happy for you because I am too jealous, if I cannot be empathetic because I have been out of the dating game too long, and if I cannot quite understand because I've never been on Hinge, I can at least promise this. I will never behave as if your life matters less than mine. I will never call you feckless if you will never call me boring. And as long as we can pledge that, we should be solid until menopause. Oh, brilliant. Thank you for that. I love the way she puts that. I will not use your adventures as a yardstick for my own domesticity. Although, side note, what happens after menopause? I know, I love that that's the grand finale. I have to say, I think you and I made those pledges to each other a long time ago, Panda, so I think we're pretty solid until menopause. I was quite nervous hearing you read them. (laughs) No, no, we made them a long time ago, babe, but then the menopause will come and all bets are off. (laughs) Never seeing you again. Got it written in the contract that as soon as you start your menopause, I'm just hoofing you off the side of a cliff. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch, berets, tote bags, notebooks, pens. What else have we got, Panda? Is that everything? T-shirts. <laughs> T-shirts, jumpers, jumpers, you name it, we've got it. Thehiloshop.com. 100% of proceeds go to charity, 50% to Freedom Charity, and 50% to Black Minds Matter. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.